Hey, hey, water coolians, welcome back to a another episode of Water Cooler Talk. Today, I have the absolute pleasure to have a conversation with astronaut, rehab doctor, and most importantly, Martian, Dr. Shayna Gifford. She, along with five other colleagues, spent 366 days isolated on the slopes of a volcano in Hawaii to understand how one day we might live and operate on the red planet of Mars. In space, the idea of space exploration, the possibility of life beyond us, has always been a, a monumental fascination of mine, from field trips to the planetarium, postulating over the Fermi paradox, just in general, allowing myself to soak in as much of that information as possible about existence outside of our own Earth. This has been a topic that, you know, just time and time again, I gravitate towards, but you know, as for many, as time has gone on, other interests have taken away from that adoration of space. So to be able to revisit those memories through this episode and my conversation with Shay was really a, t a time and a half. And I hope that joy transfers through my voice, through your ears and <laughs> activate your, you know, the happiness chemicals to to bring you a sense of joy in your day. In this episode, we discuss good old Tom Cruise and his interest in creating a Hollywood film in space, and how our media is influencing the future of space exploration. One of the bigger topics we build a conversation around is the idea of using public support to make space accessible to everyone. When you look at the prices for space tourism at, what is it, let's see, 250000 for Virgin Galactic, and 52 million for SpaceX. You know, it, it, it's tough to imagine the future of space tourism for the everyday citizen. But as we discuss in this episode, the more we explore these avenues, the more affordable those options become. And you know what? Before we know it, we have Shay back on the podcast and we're recording from actual space. And then in our final story, we discuss the importance of laughter and if NASA should invest in clowns. Yes, the clowns with big shoes and bright red noses. The clowns that everyone in 2016 was so afraid of that they stayed inside. Why can't we have that same energy in 2020? Come on, people. But yes, back to NASA investing in clowns. You know, should they be used to help release tension on <laughs> space missions to planets such as Mars? So without further ado... Ladies and gentlemen, this is Water Cooler Talk episode 44 titled Space Needs You with Dr. Shayna Gifford. Enjoy! This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. Uh, so before we begin, I hate to have to ask you this question because I'm sure you've been asked it so, so, so many times, but I know I'm going to get a lot of angry emails if I don't. Isolation on simulated Mars or isolation due to a global pandemic? Which one do you prefer? Oh, simulated Mars any day. <laughs> to everyone hearing my voice, you are now participants in a spontaneous space simulation. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this is not how it was supposed to go. You were supposed to get training and agree to participate in the space simulation before it launched. And I wish I could change it. It would have been it would have been nice to have some training. So uh, going into it, we could follow directions. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, are you ready to jump into it? Let's do it. This is from the AP News, March twenty seventh, twenty twenty. NASA chief all in for Tom Cruise to film on space station. 
NASA is rolling out the International Space Station's red carpet for one of Hollywood's biggest stars, Tom Cruise, to hopefully make the next blockbuster hit in the unknowns of actual space. NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine, prior to SpaceX's historic launch of Bob Benkin and Doug Hurley into space, stated that Elon Musk's SpaceX is already getting customers who are eager to blast off into space through commercialized space flights, Tom Cruise being among the many. Bridenstine states, I will tell you this, NASA has been in talks with Tom Cruise and of course his team, and we will do everything we can to make sure it's a successful mission, including opening up the International Space Station. Bridenstine says the reason NASA created a commercial marketplace is so SpaceX, Boeing, and other private companies can attract customers besides the US government, which in turn will drive down costs to American taxpayers and increase access to space for all types of individuals. Jim Bridenstine admits, the question is, can Tom Cruise make a new movie that inspires the next generation's Elon Musk? And if he can do that, then we're all in for it. NASA is all in. So Shay, how how has the commercialization of space, for example, Tom Cruise attempting to make a Hollywood movie in space, changed society's interest in space exploration? I know during your time on Simulated Mars, The Martian was released. It was. And, you know, we were sort of just living peacefully on Mars right up until that time. And after that, we never had a quiet night again. Yeah, I would imagine, you know, it's a renewed interest in something people may not think about on a daily basis. Absolutely. And speaking only for myself, not on behalf of NASA or Chief Bridenstine, many people credit Andy Weir for quote unquote saving NASA or oh, really? a renewed mm-hmm, a renewed invigorated vision not just an interest if you ask any child are they interested in space they're going to say yes the majority of adults you know you like to quote surveys in your podcast you know Bloomberg did a great survey about space and the commercialization of space and in that survey which is a few years ago now the majority of people said yes Space is an unequivocal good thing. People across party lines, cultures, races all support space. Not everyone surveyed thought that the commercial industry should be in charge of space at that time. People actually thought government still should be because space is the province of all humankind. And people tend to equate commercial interests with things being divvied up and sold and valued and devalued. And many people don't want to see that happening to space. But then again, space is of infinite size and isn't actually something you can physically own. So (laughs) (laughs) a lot of real estate out there, a lot of space in space, Uh, unless you're in a spaceship, in which case space is at a premium. When you think of space, it's just like you said, you know, it's just an unknown. There's so much out there that you're like, this could potentially be possible because we just don't know. Is Star Wars out there somewhere in the deepness of space? And you just don't know. You can't technically say no. I mean, the odds of it happening are probably low, but it's so cool to think you technically can't say no to Star Wars existing somewhere out there. No, you can't. Most of the galaxy, if they're looking in the direction of Earth with any optical sensing equipment, sees dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. So yes, there's life on Earth. Yeah. And I think (laughs) you had written somewhere, I can't remember the exact um, where it was, but you said, you know, if someone's looking back on our solar system, they're seeing, you know, Venus, Earth, Mars, they're all livable, potentially livable habitats. When we're looking out in the space and finding these, you know, planet type or Earth type planets, it's like, yeah, this massive delay in time because of, you know, how light travels and how we look through, you know, telescopes to find these planets. Who knows what could be out there? Yeah. Space is, in the words of Douglas Adams, really big. 
really, really enormously large. What makes it even more complicated is that big space means big time. So that the nearest star to us, you know, Proxima Centauri has some planets. Are they habitable? Well, that depends on what you need to survive. They might be habitable to some of the bacteria living around the geothermal springs, but not habitable to you and me. They might be habitable to some form of life that's been living on Mars since long before Mars lost its atmosphere, or something that's been living in the clouds above Venus for millions of years as Venus became hotter and hotter and hotter. Might find that very comfortable. So whether something is habitable really depends on who you are. Very true. And I think it's just so, so interesting to think about. And talking about Tom Cruise, what role does our media play in supporting this productive conversation of or about space. Science communication and the media play a huge role. This is my bias. I'll <laughs> endorse my biases. I am a journalist. But it, it's often said that science isn't done until it's communicated. And I believe that's true. Thank you for doing your show, Adam, by the <laughs> I way. I appreciate it. Um, but we're, we're trying to make the, the universe accessible and interesting to everybody so that people can explore it. That's the purpose of science really is to support exploration and exploration in turn supports science. So it's a really cool cycle. The more we get, the more science we invest in, the more we, the further we can go, the more we can do, we get there and we discover more stuff and it makes the science even better. So it's a very cool and exciting time to be alive and to be talking about going into space again and this time staying there. Hopefully. Yeah, you had a really good quote. It was, we collectively close our eyes, make a wish in the form of unwavering public support, open our eyes and don't blink for as long as it takes to get the job done on getting boots on Mars and you know how we eventually got boots on the moon in the 60s. And it is, it is like all this science is so interesting and it's how does the media portray that and help push that public support forward. You know, you get movies like Ad Astra and, you know, The First Man and Gravity and whatever Tom Cruise decides to do. And people are like, well, shoot, this is really cool. Let's let's talk about how we can make this a reality. You know, obviously, some of those movies are a reality with The First Man. But it's so cool to watch a movie like The First Man and see what they had to go through during the 60s to get these men up into space and get them on the moon. It's like, holy moly. <laughs> In a mission that had no idea where it was the whole time, it came within six seconds of failing. Yeah, absolutely. That was a great mission. It's really interesting that this whole continuum of how, how space has evolved, it evolved from science fiction. And people reading Jules Verne at the turn of the century, you had just space enthusiasts were developed thanks to Jules Verne. They read From Earth to the Moon and they said, Oh, yeah, we can do that. And, you know, everyone from Konstantin Silzlowski, a, a mathematics teacher in Russia, who just started writing the rocket equation and designing rockets out of nowhere to people in France, people in Britain, amateur enthusiasts world round started trying to send things to space, trying to figure out what shape it should be, how much energy it needed. And so it was just this amateur thing, similar to airplanes. People are just launching the kitty hawk. Let's see how we can go. People had been just flying things since the 1800s, right? Same thing with rockets. And then just what happened with air travel happened with space travel. The military turned around and was like, oh, yeah, that would be awfully useful, wouldn't it? Took a bunch of the rocket enthusiasts hanging around in Germany after the First World War and said, you know that thing you've been trying to get to the moon with? Can we borrow that? And of course, they didn't borrow it for any... Um, humanitarian reasons. <laughs> um, but th they had the means. Mm -hmm. You know, all these wonderful people were brilliant. 
uh, but they didn't have the ability to build a rocket that would go. And suddenly they have the means, the military builds it. And then just like in air travel, it, it migrates towards the commercial sector where this can go back to being something that we've paid for it. We've invested in it with our tax dollars. And now the average individual who has been supporting this all along can actually personally make use of it. And that happened in air travel. And now it's happening with space travel. It's really exciting. Ever since the existence of humans, we've always looked to the stars and what's going on up there. You know, I, I grew up watching the Twilight Zone and X-Files and I'm like, man, aliens, I want to I want to know more. <laughs> what's out there. And I think it, it, it's so interesting what media can do to help the public opinion of programs like SpaceX or even help, you know, obviously in the past, you know, 10, 20 years, the funding to NASA hasn't been as great as it was in, you know, the 60s and the 70s. But getting back to that point where we look up to the stars and say, let's let's go for it. Let's figure out what's out there and let's see how us as humans can create the technology to make it so people like me and you can go up there just on a what Sunday. Yeah, you can go. Um, I really hope that in our lifetimes, we see that, uh, you know, back to the story, seven or 800 people somewhere in there have paid for a ticket on Virgin Galactic, and I'm told have been trained up. Interesting. They have their flight crews and their jumpsuits, and they've been centrifuge tested, and they are ready to rock out as soon as Virgin Galactic is. It should be within the next 48 months that we start to have more commercial astronauts or space tourists than we ever had federal astronauts. Well, real quick, you had mentioned in our previous call kind of the training to go into that. Do you mind explaining just a quick run through of the training to be an astronaut? If you, Adam, wanted to go to space, let's go podcast in space. So if you're going to go up as a tourist, um, we basically have to first uh, assure that you would survive the trip. Rule number one, you got to be able to survive it. So how do we assure that? Well, during the trip, a bunch of things happen to you. You undergo a large number of G-forces, you know, similar to what you get when you take a big turn on a roller coaster. When you flip upside down, you might take two or three Gs. You know how you kind of feel pressed into your seat. A lot of the launch feels like that. Two or three Gs, you kind of had trouble lifting up your arms. So you can still kind of move your fingers a little bit. You can still scream. Woo! All right. Then when it starts to get up towards five, six Gs, you can't really move your fingers and you start to have trouble breathing normally. You have to learn to breathe deliberately. So we train people in an altitude chamber to learn how to breathe against the force on their chest. And then for a very short period of time on these commercial launches, I've seen the curves, you take up to eight Gs, but it's for less than a minute. Now, that's a lot. But as long as you can still have good oxygenation in your lungs and your heart's still healthy, it should be okay. Now, we do all those tests for you. We put you on a centrifuge and spin you up, see how you do. Notoriously vomiting on the way into spaces, <laughs> ill-advised, especially when your visor is closed. And if your visor is not closed, vomiting is a social disease. Unfortunately, one human starts vomiting, the next human tends to pick mm. up the disease. So we want to ensure that you're able to do this without vomiting. And if not, you may get premedicated. So you've been taught how to breathe. You've been taught how to deal with an increase in G-forces. You've been premedicated if needed. And then we just have to train you to not break stuff. There's a lot of there's a lot of delicate things and levers that you may not want to press or pull or push. <laughs> I, I, I watched an hour long documentary on them exploring the International Space Station. I was like, there's just so much tech out there that I have no idea. I'm like, probably keep the hands away on every surface, right? Like, don't put your foot there. No, no, <laughs> mm -hmm. that will kill us all. Yeah. Like that, you know that kind of. Thing. <laughs> so if you're just going up as as a tourist to hang out in the ISS, and there are some great simulations where you can actually grab onto handholds and pull yourself through. 
I highly recommend them. You get a sense of everything that's going on. And so you would just be oriented to the part of the station that you were going to be in. You probably wouldn't explore the whole football field size bit. The Russians are, that's their module. Technically, that's their country legally. Mm -hmm. So unless you have permission to go to Russia, you're not going to go into the Russian module. In the American module, you might visit the kitchen and maybe some of the different bays. So you'd be, you'd be oriented to those places. And then you'd be oriented to some emergency procedures. What to do if you hear certain alarms, smell certain smells, where to go if there's a radiation warning, things like that. In, in that video, they actually showed the Russian components of the International Space Station. It was so cramped and it was just like, it was so interesting because they had walked through, you know, the American side and the Japanese side and then it was the Russian side. And it was like, not a lot of space over there. And carpeted. <laughs> yes. I mean, not to say obviously it gets dirty because you're using it, but it was like, it was interesting to see the new section that they had implemented with the clean carpeting and, and then the old carpeting. It was like, all right, I get it. A lot of messes in space. It gets dirty. It all <laughs> gets dirty. Um, if you talk to astronauts, it, it, kind of smells like a gym, sounds like a machine shop. I mean, it's sweat and 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 oil and electricity and the smell of Freon um, and dirt now that they're growing plants. You know, um, the dome didn't smell too differently. <laughs> the living room was carpeted for better and worse. And when you come in from your EVA and you're wearing your, your simulated spacesuit and your shoes are full of rocks and you pull the thing off and you're sweating everywhere and you got to take all the water out of your liquid cold garment and it splashes on the floor and it's just you wash rinse repeat right mm -hmm. you know, we clean the dome every week but it still had an odor <laughs> <laughs> but my friend jeff kluger who's a writer for time magazine he wrote apollo 13 came to stay in the dome overnight it was very intrepid he could not stand to be in the bathroom let's just put it that way <laughs> I imagine many people in quarantine these days are uh, smelling the rooms and they're like, well, yeah, all right, time to time to scrub this down. Yeah. Yes. But all right. So back to the training, we go through the centrifuge. We're learning not to puke in our mm -hmm. spaceships or not spaceships, space uh, suits. What's what's what are the next steps after you learn not to puke in your spacesuit? You learn basically the procedures. So, you know, you're told buckle in, we're going to take off. But how do you know when to unbuckle? How do you come aboard? Once you're aboard, where do you go? What do you do? So this is, everything is written out. You know, it's a set of checklists and procedures. So you're oriented to those procedures, how to operate your suit. How do you get your helmet piece off? You know, it's not intuitive. In the morning when you wake up, you know what to do. You know, you grab your shirt, your pants, you put your socks on. Sure. None of, not necessarily any of that applies in space. <laughs> where are you going to sleep? Where are you going to eat? How do you eat without making a huge mess? If you're going to work out, what happens to your sweat? Pro tip, it doesn't actually collect where you think it will. It will hang around your eyes and your mouth and your armpits. And, you know, how do you deal with all of that? So just the most basic aspects of living that we all take for granted, like using the bathroom, mm -hmm. very particular rules on how you do that in space. So you have to get oriented to just basic space 101, how to function like a human in microgravity. <laughs> uh, and then kind of back to Tom Cruise, based on Tom Cruise's film Pass, you know, we know a movie, if he does do a movie in space, it might have a bit of action and may take some creative liberties. Uh, so I turn to your expertise in asking, you know, what are good movies? What are good pieces of media about space that people who may be interested can enjoy while the entire world kind of practices for the nine-month trip to Mars in isolation. Nine-month trip to Mars. For the visuals, gravity is incredibly well done, just for the visuals. Um, they got that right. And it makes me wonder, if you're going to shoot a movie in space, what are you aiming for? Because our tech appears to be so good 
that you can pull off stunts like that. Now, pro tip again, if you're going to be in the ISS when the world is ending and you float by something on fire, stop and put it out. <laughs> that was the moment in gravity. I said, oh yeah, they're not really in space. She just went right past that mm -hmm. thing on fire. Mm -hmm. So what other good movies are there? A Year in Space, Scott Kelly. And it, it portrays the human elements. You know, he has to say goodbye to his children and his life partner, now his wife. He misses home. You know, he has to say goodbye to his brother and his father sitting there on his nasal cannula getting oxygen, you know, through a tube. And his dad's like, oh, grump, grump. And it's okay, dad. Yeah, I've done this before. And grump's like, dad's like, yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, that's the reality of it. You know, you got to pack it away for a year. I wrote my husband 12 letters and left them in a pile. I wrote my mother 12 letters and left them in a pile. You know, I made sure I, everyone knew that they could email me. They could, they can't call me. You, you can't video chat me. There's a delay because space is really, really, really big. And the delay is 40 minutes. So, but I'm here for you. I'm here for you. And you have to set everything up so that things keep working even in your absence. Well, yeah, as we'll talk about in our second news story, you know, you can see the visuals of space. And I think we can do that pretty well in Hollywood. But it is, you know, a, as you know, your time spent on simulated Mars is it's the human interactions that are the real importance of these missions and what we should really be, you know, if we're wanting to watch a movie, watching movies like 12 Angry Men, where it's a bunch of people just in one room. And what are the social constructs of being together for a certain set of time and what that does to human relationships? Uh, while on the mission, my German crewmate made us walk, watch Das Experiment, which is a very dark take on what these kinds of things can look like. It's basically the Stanford prison experiment. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it was a, it, there's an important difference between what I did and what Scott and Chell Lindgren, uh, who was the physician up there with Scott, were, were doing. You know, we were research subjects. Our primary goal was to produce the science that will allow people to go to Mars and succeed. They were also research subjects. You know, doing their own blood draws, collecting hair and saliva and all kinds of things of, you know, swabbing their bodies to see what was growing on their skin. And the people who go to Mars will be research subjects for sure, but they're also just, they're going to be a lot like the explorers of old. They've got to survive. And, you know, that, that maybe takes us towards our next discussion of humor and whatever. But basically, as part of that survival, you develop your own culture. You know, here on Earth, you know, who got the latest iPhone? What are you doing with your hair? You know, what, who are you wearing? What are you driving? None of this applies. Mm -hmm. Money cannot be exchanged for goods and services. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, there are no ringtones. News only reaches you if you want it to, or if it's really bad and, and NASA waits till dinner to give you the bad news like they did with us at times. But you're in a different place. Your capabilities and interests are very different. You're of the earth, but you're no longer on the earth. Your responsibilities to the whole human race remain, but your ability to connect to the whole human race is limited. And we don't know what happens to people when they lose that overview effect. We as a race, as a species, have never been beyond eyeshot of earth. So we're rolling the dice here. And, and we're going to see what happens. I would like to welcome to the show, Dr. Shana Gifford. Dr. Gifford works in tandem with our friendly neighborhood Spider-Man as our friendly neighborhood space and rehab doctor. From 2015 to 2016, she embarked on a one-year mission to simulated Mars, S-Mars for high seas four, on the big island of Hawaii. Her and five other colleagues spent that year living on the slopes of a dormant volcano to understand how humans cope with extended isolation, delayed communication, 
and much, much more as astronauts to Mars may experience. There is a good collection of essays, Once Upon a Time I Lived on Mars by Kate Green, if you're interested in hearing more about the time on S. Mars. But today we are lucky enough to have the actual Dr. Gifford on the show. Shay, I officially welcome you to Water Cooler Talk. Thanks, Adam. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Uh, having spent that significant time on S. Mars, outside of the work you were doing for NASA, what did you learn about yourself and generally take away from that year spent in isolation to live a better life on Earth? In summary, I love humans and Earth is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it has all the stuff. Earth has all our stuff. It has all our people. It has all our forests and oceans and colors. When you're up there on the slopes of the not as dormant as it might otherwise be volcano. <laughs> it's still a volcano at the end of the day. It's still a volcano and it shakes and shimmies all the time. Mauna Loa is rocking and rolling. And Mars does too. There are Mars quakes. So that's fair enough. But when you're out there on the lava, everything is black and red and gray. I would dream about blue and green I would dream about whole things like apples and eggs. And everything we had was powdered or freeze-dried. Every All the life as you know it, everything that you take for granted, and everything that's easy, like breathing and bathing, is cast into stark relief because it becomes something you need to plan for and think about. So yes, yeah, space is cool. The Earth is the most awesome. <laughs> from, from what I understand about the simulated Mars you guys did, you're pretty much able to you know, replicate many of the situations of actually living on Mars besides the gravity, right? Couldn't do the gravity, didn't do the air pressure. It was uh, at about 8,000 feet above sea level. So the air pressure of about an airplane cabin, okay, more or less. So I don't know what the Mars habitat will be pressured to. Nobody does. The International Space Station is pressured to sea level, 17.4 uh, PSI. So we had much less air pressure than that. But what they pressurize the uh, future Mars base to is anybody's guess. Uh, <laughs> we uh, Air was allowed in and out. We will probably not do that on Mars. Might be a little dangerous. Might be dangerous for the planet and for us. Uh, although, to be perfectly fair, um, there's no such thing as a totally sealed environment. The best we can get is 99%. So stuff will always go in and out, which is why we're hoping to find the life before we send people. Because after we send people, proving that we didn't bring it with us is going to be the difficult part. Oh, yeah. That's interesting to think about. What, do, what would you say was one of the biggest things you learned about yourself during that time? That I am... Probably one of the most fortunate beings that ever lived. <laughs> you know, thinking about your previous podcast where people talked about gratitude. Every morning I woke up on Sim Mars, I woke up uh, just around the time the captain did and the, the space architect, but they would hang out in their bunks. I would go out into the main area and watch the sunrise over Mauna Kea, the volcano next door, and it would light up the dome like being inside a snow globe. And I would do yoga and exercise and breathe and look out on the lava and think, my God, how did some nerdy kid from L.A. end up here? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a dream for me to be there, but my real hope is that others can go, that by being there, I've helped, helped us along the path. And that waking up every day and saying, I really think I might be helping, that was a dream come true. Yeah, imagine it has to be exhilarating to realize I'm – one of the first, you know, of many steps to habitating another planet. Yeah. And it's it's weird to be, you know, I was the doctor on the longest space simulation in US history. But there I was and there it happened. And I I know I won't be the last. 
y'all, everyone who's listening, you're up next. <laughs> and I think, you know, that's as we're in our own kind of isolation here on Earth because of COVID. I think a lot of people are also realizing that, too, the gratitude of just being able to wake up every day and say, you know what? Life life may not be the greatest all the time, but today I'm enjoying it and I'm loving what I'm doing and I'm loving who I am and I'm lucky enough to be here and to experience everything that life can offer. Absolutely. There's so many people suffering right now. I see it in the hospital every day. You know, Adam, if you told me seven months ago that I was going to have to lock my patients away from their families, communicate them with communicate to them with iPads from outside the room, put them face down and blow oxygen at them for days at a time. I'd say, yeah, mm, very interesting. I have some people you should talk to. But um, that's the reality now that even people who are dying are limited to one guest, two guests, that, you know, people can't see their loved ones. And it's so hard. It's so hard for so many. So mad respect. But also in this particular space simulation, we've all been thrown into unexpectedly. The windows open mm -hmm. and you have internet and alcohol and cookies, <laughs> lots of cookies <laughs> and people you can talk to real time who are outside of your house. So you have a lot of, we all have a lot of stuff. We do. We have resources here, even though it is so hard for so many. Uh, we are resourced if we organize ourselves properly to deal with a lot of it. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the most important thing to remember is, yeah, you can open up the window and the birds are chirping and at least... If you're in, you know, the Western Hemisphere where it's summer now. But uh, listeners, if you would like to connect with Shay and learn more about her work, you can do so by following her on Twitter at Humans Are Awesome. No O and Awesome. Once again, that's Humans Are Awesome. Awesome spelled A-W-E-S-M-E. -E, or by taking the time to enjoy her professional website, www.livefrommars.life. One more time, www livefrommars.life, where you can have, uh, you have a handful of videos on there that I was able to kind of check out about your time in simulated Mars, which I thought was pretty cool. And as always, those links will be included in the description of this episode and on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. Once again, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. Before we move on, Water Cooler Talk is on a mission to help give back to different parts of the community and those who have helped build our show to where it stands today. For each episode, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. On the day of the episode going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to the charity in the guest's name, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. And we hope you listening to this episode can join in donating even $5 to the guest charity of choice or help spread their message to a brand new audience. Shay, your charity of choice for today's episode is Black Girls Code. Do you mind explaining a bit about what they do and the impact they have in the community? Absolutely. Black Girls Code is a, a 501c charity organization. It's been around since 2011, now partnered with Microsoft. They've opened centers all over the country, though now that we're mostly shut down, they have online resources for teaching, for learning, for coding, and their focus is helping young women ages 7 to 17 gain confidence and empowerment and creativity and skills to build the next generation of everything we need. Now, there's infinite charities out there. There's many worthy ones. I thought long and hard. Right now, COVID is striking everyone, especially our, our Native American population, so hard. What we really need, though, because all these problems, the, the lack of public health infrastructure and the lack of healthcare infrastructure, those problems need to be solved, not just today, but tomorrow and forever. And the people who are going to help us solve it are in school right now. So we need to support them in developing the tools and the talent to help us solve these problems for good. No, I very much appreciate you sharing that. You know, I think 
the STEM field is it's so important that we make that exclusive for everyone. Everyone has the chance to be a part of the future. So right. I, I appreciate you sharing that uh, charity. And thank you everyone for everything you do. If you work in a STEM field, it is a labor of love. <laughs> All right, Shay, are you ready to go into our final news story of the episode? Oh yeah, let's do it. Jokers, please. <laughs> First human Mars mission may need onboard comedians. This is from the Guardian Science, February 15th, 2019. Wanted, smart, fit, unflappable, must have, crazy wig, oversized boots, and a big red nose. Rather than the cool personalities that underpin the right stuff featured by Tom Wolfe in the Apollo era, future astronauts may need to prove that they have something very different. The silly stuff. Research shows an onboard comedian is a proven way to unite teams in stressful situations. Jeffrey Johnson, an anthropologist at the University of Florida states, These are people that have the ability to pull everyone together, bridge gaps when tensions appear, and really boost morale. When you're living with others in a confined space for a long period of time, such as a mission to Mars, tensions are likely to fray. It's vital you have somebody who can help everyone get along so they can do their jobs and get there and back safely. It's mission critical. Johnson spent time studying overwintering crews in Antarctica and identified the importance of clowns, leaders, buddies, storytellers, peacemakers, and counselors for bonding teams together and making them work smoothly. He, however, uh, fans of the show, made no mention of the negative impact of spoilers. Uh, with NASA planning to fly astronauts around the moon in 2023 to prepare a crewed mission to Mars as early as 2033, and Russian and Chinese agencies proposing human missions from 2040 onward, even private ventures such as SpaceX, as we mentioned in the first story, in the mix, those involved to be one of the first to visit the fourth planet from the sun are finding a mission to Mars will be no cakewalk. On average, the red planet is 140 million miles from Earth, about 34 million miles away at its closest point, and about 250 million miles away at its farthest. Which means Earth and Mars need to be properly lined up to allow for a preferred 9-month one-way trip, which happens to occur every 26 months. That is, there is only one launch window every 26 months with ideal conditions. The distance alone is expected to take a psychological toll. But astronauts may also face a time delay in communication from Earth to Mars of up to 20 minutes each way, which means in an emergency, there will be no time to call mission control and the crew are effectively on their own. When NASA tested a 50-second communication delay on astronauts stationed aboard the International Space Station, they found well-being slumped and frustration rose among the crew, which eventually resulted in impacting how efficiently tasks on the ISS were completed. Jeffrey Johnson is now working with NASA to explore whether clowns and other characters are crucial for the success of long space missions. On those roles, he states, These roles are informal. They emerge within the group. If you have the right combination, the group does well. And if you don't, the group does very, very badly. So obviously we know the, the importance of a cohesive unit here on Earth. But how much more important does that cohesion come once you're millions of miles away on another planet? Well, you've got to stick together because you're all the <laughs> only humans around. The most valuable resource in space on a human mission is your fellow humans, for sure. Our commander once mulled that over. And she said, God, I don't know what would happen if anything happened to any one of us. That's the case. You know, it's, it's you and them. And it's kind of like your family. You know, you don't always get on with your family, but you know, you're, you would be, it kills you to lose them. So you're all in it together for better and worse. You got to make it there. You got to make it back. But back to the clowns, Adam, do you actually know any clowns, like any actual clowns? I do. I do. I do not know actually 
any clowns, but I do know on average clowns make 51,000 a year. That's very interesting. <laughs> I know an actual clown. Uh, Nina Levine is a theatrical clown and teacher in New York. You can look her up. And before COVID, one of the things Nina and her clown troupe would do would be to go entertain the children in hospitals. Now, why is that important? Well, besides just being terribly bored in this environment that never changes and, and not being able to leave, it provides you some relief from the relentlessness of your circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. So there's the entertainment factor. And in space, you never get a day off. I mean, I worked 366, it was a leap year, days straight. And I, I walked out of there, but then I proceeded to get in a vehicle for the first time in a year and kind of say, and I'm off duty. <laughs> <laughs> so humor provides that, that transportive uh, effect where you feel like you've been transported out of your circumstances into just another place. So it's like a mini mental vacation. But also what humor does, and this harkens back to a previous podcast of yours where you're talking about anger. And your guest said that they thought anger arose from confusion, which it can. But in a, in a larger sense, in my experience, anger arises because it is easier than vulnerability. It is easier than being confused or hurt or scared or lonely. And so you get angry. Rather than getting angry, if you have another path to vulnerability, a, a socially acceptable one, perhaps one that involves making light of these vulnerabilities, <laughs> perhaps one that involves, I don't know, putting out the fact that you are sad, scared, confused, and lost, and then letting everyone laugh at you is actually a path to being safely vulnerable so you don't have to get angry. And that's really important, just not only for your personal sanity, but for the team, because everybody there, everyone on our not-so-dormant volcano, was hours from rescue on a good day, uh, had limited medical supplies, and knew it. So on some level, if you really were realistic about the situation, we should all be just a little scared most of the time, if not all the time. And that gets very wearying. And rather than let that fray your nerves, you can just make fun of that fact or make fun of the fact that, you know, hopefully the house hasn't burned down and my cats are still there when I get back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's there that you really hope they are. Mm -hmm. But, you yeah. know, rather, rather than letting that worry you, you just sort of bring up that vulnerability and put it out there as humor. Like humor is such a, um, what's the word for it? is such a connecting force. Everyone laughs. A lot of the times comedians, they use this, the, the stage to, you know, talk about hard things in their life and to make fun of it because it is, it's easier to address something. If you can laugh about that, you know, we talk a lot about male vulnerability and I even know, you know, among friends, it's a lot easier to, you know, make fun in light of a situation than actually say, man, I'm really scared. I, you know, I've been single for this long or this long. And it's more of like, ah, I'm just a single dude having a fun time. And it, it, it is, it's easier to laugh. So I'd imagine, you know, when you're thousands and millions of miles away, 140 million miles away, and it's like, I just need something to get through the day. And sometimes a good laugh, you know, uh, we'll talk about in an upcoming episode, nostalgia. It's so vital. You know, you talk about the importance of people in our life in a few of your blogs, and it's the age-old saying, you know, life is better when you surround yourself with good people. Or at least people who make you laugh. <laughs> Uh, well, well, you're not when you're not spreading the love of space. You work as a resident physician in rehabilitation medicine at Washington University in St. Louis, and you kind of mentioned it. But when working with your clients, how important? is it to be able to make them smile, laugh, to improve their state of mind and recovery? I try so hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
mostly by making fun of myself. But uh, if they'll start making fun of them, like, you know, this hand just, you know, it's I'm not even sure why it's still attached. And I'm like, oh, do you want me to take that away from you? Can I can I help with that? <laughs> um, and then we all have a good laugh. One of my attendings, one of my bosses recently laughed at something I said. And she said, I'm so sorry. Just sometimes you say the funniest things and I can't help laughing. Said, well, no, I do that on purpose. <laughs> we all wear moon suits to work mm-hmm. these days. I'm seeing you through two through a layer of plastic and then another layer of plastic. We need to laugh right now. We all really badly need to laugh right now. So um, I try really hard to tell people, especially young people who've had a spinal cord injury and are not going to walk again, and are going to need help for the rest of their lives, moving from one place to another, going to the bathroom, feeding themselves. You know, this is going to be different. It's going to be different, but there's still joy to be had and there's still good things to find out there. And things will still make you laugh. Uh, There's a great story that was told about Christopher Reeve when he was lying in the ICU and he'd been told he was never going to walk again and he'd have to be on a ventilator and in a wheelchair. And he had to make the call though. They needed his permission to to trach him and vent him and and do this. And he was contemplating whether or not he just wanted to die and not sleeping. When about two in the morning, a person came in the room fully gowned up, mask, couldn't see the face, and said that he was there to to perform a rectal exam on Reeves. And it was Robin Williams. <laughs> yep. And then Reeves laughs and he realizes, I can still laugh. There is still joy. And then he he lived to see his son grow up, you know, into a very young adult. And laughter is a reason to go on sometimes if there is no other reason. Yeah, we use that if we need to. I mean, at least from my experience, the the best part of moving forward in life is just finding those joys. As we talked about, you know, finding the joys in in the middle of a global pandemic is so important to be able to have a positive outlook on life. You know, when we talk about living on another planet, there needs to be that joy. You need to find that joy to be able to say, this is this is gonna be a tough uphill climb to, you know, be one of the first people to live on another planet. But it's important that we find the joys in life. And like you said, you know, what you kind of learned about yourself is I'm I'm the first kind of stepping stones to something much bigger. I really hope so. <laughs> uh, and then during your time, I kind of want to talk about that, like communication delay. During the time on SMARS, you worked with that communication delay of 20 minutes back and forth, uh, 40 minutes to get a message. We've all been there in the dating game. Uh, how did the impact crew morale and efficiency when trying to complete tasks? That's a great question. The the smallest delay between Earth and Mars is ever going to be just around three minutes when they're at their closest. The longest is going to be forever. If Mars is on the other side of the sun, there's no talking to it directly, though you could bounce it through a satellite network. Potentially, we have no such network. So Mars actually goes dark for a couple weeks every so often, but the longest possible delay is 20 minutes in each direction. So that's what we used. And what it results in is a tremendous amount of independence. They don't tell you, they don't micromanage you the way they do on the International Space Station, where you have an, you know, an iPad with something called the playbook, which is literally an arm sweeping across your day in five minute increments. And if you're not where you should be, it starts blinking red and voices come through there, you know, the comms saying, hey, so when are you going to get to? And you say, all right, I'm coming. You know, you do your best to keep up with it. That's not how you deal with it when somebody is 40 minutes out. And in a previous simulation at Johnson Space Center, where our delay was as long as only 10 minutes, that's not how we dealt with it then either. We had a a list of tasks to accomplish, and we had a certain amount of time in which to do it, and we took care of business in our own time, in our own way. There would be times when we didn't speak to mission control for hours at a time. We didn't speak to them overnight, ever. 
So it was one of those things where it's like, yeah, you're on Earth and yep, we're on Mars and yep, we'll call you if we need you. And <laughs> that's pretty much the way it was. They called us, not literally, they emailed us when they needed us and we emailed when we needed them. But increasingly, it became apparent that Earth don't always know what's going on on Mars. Yeah. So one time we emailed them, we said, hey, the 3D printer's kind of gumming up. We want to make some some of this solution to try and clean it out. And do you have a recommendation? And they said, oh yeah, no problem. First, find a glass jar. And all the Martians started laughing. We said, oh, okay. Thanks, Earth. We'll uh, we'll figure it out. Cheers. There's no glass jar. <laughs> there, I mean, there are four glass jars and there is a cue to use them. We mm -hmm. are not going to dedicate one to the task of making a toxic substance. Thank you very much. We'll figure it out. So Earth is earthing. Mars is Marsing, and sometimes they meet in the middle. Uh, certainly, we can't do without their resources, and we needed the regular water and food resupplies. But otherwise, we were largely on our own. If we needed something, we asked. If they wanted us to do something, they told. But the communication was kind of as needed, which is a pretty good representation since you have to use a big dish like the Deep Space Network, and you're competing with every other major satellite and spacecraft in the in the mm -hmm. system for time on that and bandwidth. So you don't want to you don't want to waste it. Well, yeah, I was reading about this. I was like, I was thinking about it. And like I said, you know, we've you know, I've been there online dating. It's like, all right, I'm not hearing from you for 40 minutes. <laughs> this, this is frustrating. No, but but when you it's a recurring theme with you, Adam. Is there something you'd like to tell me? <laughs> no, not publicly. <laughs> uh, but I think it's important to remember, you know, what these, you know, NASA's doing what SpaceX is doing. These aren't just wild Western cowboys trying to figure out the wild West. These are some of the smartest, most prepared people in the entirety of, I'll say it, I'll say it, I'll go there in the entirety of the universe. And they know what they're doing. So, you know, like you said, you had your days kind of implemented and you guys were smart enough to know, hey, this is what we need to do to get through this day. And we don't always need help from, you know, Earth in this situation to get through our day because we're capable and we know what we're doing. Together, we know what we're doing. Yes. As a group, we're capable. Similar to the human race, we're a microcosm of it. So individually, I, when it comes to geology, mm, I'm lost. Looks like a rock. Yep, definitely a rock. Almost certainly a rock. I think it's a rock, but it could be some other form of sediment. I have two crew members who will set me to rights when it comes to this rock versus not rock situation. Uh, <laughs> and some of us could cook and some of us could grow our culture food and some of us could repair clothing. And I don't know how many times the chief engineer and I fixed the tea kettle, the pedicycle or the electricity producing bicycle or the treadmill. Um, <laughs> you know, as a unit, we will figure it out. Yes, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, it's very important. It it was a team effort. Absolutely. But I think actually, importantly, the people you need to, to send to space are not necessarily the smartest. I mean, that's okay. But you need emotional intelligence, excellent communication skills. Because again, it's the recognition of your vulnerabilities and where you're at and your ability to put that out there that keeps things real mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and okay with everybody. And also the will to survive on very little. I once said in a, in a show, who would make, they asked me who would make the best astronaut. And I said, well, an immigrant, obviously. You know, these people have traveled through God knows what adversity. They can make it, they can make it work. Mm -hmm. They can make it out there. And so it's, you know, figuring out, you know, my chief engineer piecing together what it's going to take to keep this tea kettle working because no tea kettle means end of mission. So 
<laughs> yet you need some skills. You do, mm -hmm. but mostly you just need creativity and resourcefulness. Yeah, no, I definitely appreciate you adding that. So now, you know, a few years removed from your, your time on simulated Mars, would a clown have helped? Oh, we had several and it was helpful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> our, uh, our space architect was hilarious. He was so funny. Uh, the commander would often ask him to make up his daily lie about his grandmother. And it would be based on something we'd done during the day. Like we did a task and it took uh, 18 minutes and 57 seconds. We'd say, uh, Tristan, what was grandma doing in 1857? He said, in 1857, grandma was drop kicking Chuck Norris down this volcano. He <laughs> would make up beautiful, beautiful lives. Um, and our, our chief engineer was also very funny. I would hear this knock or scratch on my, on my bunk room door mm -hmm. and the door would open. And I would hear that. And it would be a, a killer robot. <laughs> <laughs> Come to a very small killer robot. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe this one had a scorpion tail or, or really flashy eyes or big claws and he would build these killer robots to come say hi to us, um, which was I thought was really funny because we'd sometimes run very low on power and I would be up very early. We wouldn't have the power for me to make breakfast. So I would sometimes make my tea ahead of time. So it would just be sitting on my desk. And one day our astrobiologist and our crew architect hid it in the freezer overnight, woke up really early, snuck it back out onto my desk so that when I picked it up and tried to drink it, it would be solid. It's cold. <laughs> <laughs> cold, cold, gentlemen. Yeah, no, we all we all took a turn in playing the club. Uh, before this global pandemic happened, I worked in a food truck and, you know, Minnesota here, we have some pretty cold winters, but we remained opened and we did, you know, service through a distillery. And so we're locked in this, you know, metal truck for eight hours at a time. And you just, you just, you don't, you don't go crazy, but you just start doing funny voices and funny characters and just whatever you can, you know, as we talked about to laugh and get through the day and make it easier and, you know, definitely miss those times. But uh, I'm glad not to be locked up in a metal box in the middle of a Minnesota winter. But yeah, you, you just, I don't think you generally need a comedian specifically on the flight crew. You just need to, like you said, have people who, you know, are just creative and, you know, creatively funny and not everyone. I'm not a comedian. I like to think I'm pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> I can affirm you have humor. <laughs> uh, Shay, thank you for taking the time to share your perspective on some of the strangest and most interesting news stories the world has to offer in a productive and meaningful conversation. Listeners, if you would like to learn more about the work Dr. Gifford is doing in regard to Mars, space, and building a greener Earth, you can do so by following her on Twitter at humans are awesome no o and awesome once again that's on twitter at humans are awesome awesome spelled a w e s m e or by taking the time to look over the work she's done on her professional website a lot of good blogs there www.livefrommars.life and as always those links will be included in the description of this episode and available under shay's episode on our website www.watercoolertalkpod.com once again www.watercoolertalkpod.com Com. So we spent much of this episode talking about the next frontier, and I want to ask, why is it important that we invest in space, support programs such as NASA and SpaceX, and continue to look upon the stars? Well, for one thing, it's a good investment, <laughs> just as these things go. Um, it's something like a return of between 2 and $3 back for every dollar we spend, on the average. Um, but that was before we even went into the commercial era. You know, that's just the tech transfer from the things that we invented as a result of going to space, like 
artificial hearts, the LVADs that so many of my patients walk around in, there is a device pumping their heart, but it's just, now it's just in a fanny pack. You know, we invented the pump mechanisms. We invented um, aircraft environmental controls and the coding on the Statue of Liberty and all these things were required for us to go to space and survive there and get back. But now GPS makes everybody's life possible and delightful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's it's a great investment. It is n- not, as many people would believe, us shirking our social responsibilities to feed people and make them well and teach them and build infrastructure. If it was, I would not be involved. I actually literally took an oath to take care of people. And if space, mm-hmm. if space took away from that, I would not be involved. But space adds to that. It gives to that. It feeds back on that and gives me infrared thermometers. Every time you go into a building when you're getting screened, that's NASA tech in the hands of somebody screening. It's everywhere you look and we have a better world because of it. But we're meeting, we're meeting our social goals by going to space. It's a good financial investment. It's also just cool and an extension of who we are as a species. You know, every time we go somewhere, Hey, what's that over there is, you know, if, Humans, sub, subtext, what's that over there? You know, <laughs> we just, we can't help it. It's part of who we are. We got to go. We got to go. We got to explore. We got to go. When you're in the process of that exploration, we are sort of being our best selves. We, we are being sometimes crazy and careless about it. Sometimes you're getting in a giant wooden ship and going over the horizon to Lord knows what. But sometimes we are being our boldest and brilliant and most best selves and inspiring the entire world to keep on trudging even when things are hard because something cool and glorious awaits even if we can't describe it. So there's the inspiration, there's the practical matter of it, and there's the business aspect of it. And there's all kinds of reasons to go. I am hard-pressed to think of reasons not to. Well, that was beautiful. There are no dry eyes listening. (laughs) As always, thank you to all my listeners for listening to another episode of Water Cooler Talk, the only such podcast on the internet hosted by myself and guest hosted today by Shay, where we take the strangest and most interesting real-life news stories from around the world and just try and have a good old conversation about some of the ideas discussed in those bizarre news stories. And once again, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to reach out to the show with a local news story, or if you just want to share some of your own comments, you can do so at watercoolertalkpod at gmail.com or by connecting with us on Instagram at watercoolertalkpod. And you can now find all of our content centralized on our website at www.watercoolertalkpod.com from any of the links mentioned in an episode, past episodes, social media posts, and much much more. We have now come to my favorite part of the episode where I hand the show over to you. Ooh. Shay, it is your opportunity to close out the best the best podcast in the world, Water Cooler Talk. <laughs> the floor is yours. Hello world. I hope you're doing okay. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Space needs you. It needs your creativity. It needs your passion and your compassion. It needs your skills and abilities. Whatever you do, if you lay pipe, space needs you. If you fix lamps, space needs you. If you are a massage therapist, space needs you. (laughs) If not today, then very, very soon. Our goals are to take off and enter low Earth orbit and stay there for a long time. And from there, go to the moon and beyond. So if you need space, hang in there. Hang in there with us. Hang in there with me. Work hard because space needs you. Well, it was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much. I love the conversation. Until next time, listeners, peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real.